0: Question 154, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Trieties on the Cardinal of Virtues, The Virtue of Temperance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Trieties on the Cardinal of Virtues the virtue of temperance by saint thomas aquinas translated by the fathers of the english dominican province question 154 of the parts of lust in twelve articles part one articles one through five we must now consider the parts of lust under which head there are twelve points of inquiry first Into what parts is lust divided? Second, whether simple fornication is a mortal sin. Third, whether it is the greatest of sins. Fourth, whether there is a mortal sin in touches, kisses, and such like seduction. Fifth, whether nocturnal pollution is a mortal sin. Sixth, of seduction seventh, of rape, eighth, of adultery, ninth, of incest, tenth, of sacrilege, eleventh, of the sin against nature, twelfth, of the order of gravity in the aforesaid sins. First Article whether six species are fittingly assigned to lust. Objection 1. It would seem that six species are unfittingly assigned to lust, namely, simple fornication, adultery, incest, seduction, rape, and the unnatural vice. For diversity of matter does not diversify the species now the aforesaid division is made with regard to diversity of matter according as the woman with whom a man has intercourse is married or a virgin or of some other condition therefore it seems that the species of lust are diversified in this way objection to further seemingly the species of one vice are not differentiated by things that belong to another vice Now adultery does not differ from simple fornication, save in the point of a man having intercourse with one who is another's, so that he commits an injustice. Therefore, it seems that adultery should not be reckoned a species of lust. Objection 3. Further, just as man may happen to have intercourse with a woman who is bound to another man by marriage, so may it happen that a man has intercourse with a woman who is bound to God by vow. Therefore, sacrilege should be reckoned a species of lust, even as adultery is. Objection 4. Further, a married man sins not only if he be with another woman, but also if he use his own wife inordinately. But the latter sin is comprised under lust therefore it should be reckoned among the species thereof objection five further the apostle says in second corinthians twelve twenty one lest again when i come god humble me among you and i mourn many of them that sinned before and have not done penance for the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness that they have committed Therefore, it seems that also uncleanness and lasciviousness should be reckoned species of lust, as well as fornication. Objection 6. Further, the thing divided is not to be reckoned among its parts. But lust is reckoned together with the aforesaid. For it is written in Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are fornication, uncleanness, immodesty, lust. Therefore, it seems that fornication is unfittingly reckoned a species of lust. On the contrary, the aforesaid division is given in the Decretals, 6, one. I answer that... As stated above in question 153, article 3, the sin of lust consists in seeking venereal pleasure not in accordance with right reason. This may happen in two ways. First, in respect of the matter wherein this pleasure is sought. Secondly, when, whereas there is due matter, other due circumstances are not observed. And since a circumstance as such does not specify a moral act whose species is derived from its object which is also its matter it follows that the species of lust must be assigned with respect to its matter or object now this same matter may be discordant with right reason in two ways first because it is inconsistent with the end of the venereal act in this way as hindering the begetting of children, there is the vice against nature, which attaches to every venereal act from which generation cannot follow. And, as hindering the due upbringing and advancement of the children when born, there is simple fornication, which is the union of an unmarried man with an unmarried woman. Secondly, the matter wherein the venereal act is consummated may be discordant with right reason in relation to other persons, and this in two ways. First, with regard to the woman, with whom a man has connection, by reason of due honor not being paid to her. And thus there is incest, which consists in the misuse of a woman who is related by consanguinity or affinity secondly with regard to the person under whose authority the woman is placed and if she be under the authority of a husband it is adultery if under the authority of her father it is seduction in the absence of violence and rape if violence be employed these species are differentiated on the part of the woman rather than of the man because in the venereal act the woman is passive and is by way of matter, whereas the man is by way of agent, as has been stated above in the first objection, that the aforesaid species are assigned with regard to a difference of matter. Reply to objection one The aforesaid diversity of matter is connected with a formal difference of object, which difference results from different modes of operation to right reason, as stated above reply to objection to as stated above in the pars prima secunde question eighteen article seven nothing hinders the deformities of different vices concurring in the one act and in this way adultery is comprised under lust and injustice nor is this deformity of injustice altogether accidental to lust since the lust that obeys concupiscence so far as to lead to injustice is thereby shown to be more grievous reply to objection three since a woman by vowing continence contracts a spiritual marriage with god the sacrilege that is committed in the violation of such a woman is a spiritual adultery in like manner the other kinds of sacrilege pertaining to lustful matter are reduced to other species of lust. Reply to Objection 4. The sin of a husband with his wife is not connected with undue matter, but with other circumstances, which do not constitute the species of a moral act as stated above in the Pars Prima question 18, article 2. Reply to Objection 5. As a gloss says on this passage, uncleanness stands for lust against nature, while lasciviousness is a man's abuse of boys, wherefore it would appear to pertain to seduction. We may also reply that lasciviousness relates to certain acts circumstantial to the venereal act, for instance, kisses, touches, and so forth. Reply to objection six. According to a gloss on this passage, lust there signifies any kind of excess. Second article. Whether simple fornication is a mortal sin. Objection one. It would seem that simple fornication is not a mortal sin, For things that come under the same head would seem to be on a par with one another. Now fornication comes under the same head as things that are not mortal sins. For it is written in Acts 15.29, That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. But there is not mortal sin in these observances, according to First Timothy four four. Nothing is rejected that is received with thanksgiving. Therefore, fornication is not a mortal sin. Objection to further, no mortal sin is the matter of a divine precept, but the Lord commanded in Hosea one two. Go, take thee a wife of fornications, and have of her children of fornications. Therefore, fornication is not a mortal sin. Objection 3. Further, no mortal sin is mentioned in Holy Writ without disapprobation. Yet simple fornication is mentioned without disapprobation by Holy Writ in connection with the patriarchs thus we read in genesis 16:4 that abraham went into his handmaid agar and further on in genesis 30 verses 5 and 9 that jacob went into Bala and zelpha the handmaids of his wives and again in genesis 38:18 that judah was with tamar with whom he thought to be a harlot therefore simple fornication is not a mortal sin objection for further every mortal sin is contrary to charity but simple fornication is not contrary to charity neither as regards the love of god since it is not a sin directly against god nor as regards the love of our neighbor since thereby no one is injured therefore Simple fornication is not a mortal sin. Objection 5 further. Every mortal sin leads to eternal perdition. But simple fornication has not this result, because a gloss of Ambrose Translators note the quotation is from the gloss of Peter Lombard, who refers it to St. Ambrose, whereas it is from Hilary the deacon. On 1 Timothy 4.8, godliness is profitable to all things, says, The whole of Christian teaching is summed up in mercy and godliness. If a man conforms to this, even though he gives way to the inconstancy of the flesh, doubtless he will be punished, but he will not perish. Therefore, simple fornication is not a mortal sin objection six further augustine says in on the good of marriage sixteen that what food is to the well-being of the body such is sexual intercourse to the welfare of the human race but inordinate use of food is not always a mortal sin therefore neither is all inordinate sexual intercourse and this would seem to apply especially To simple fornication which is the least grievous of the aforesaid species on the contrary it is written in tobit 413 take heed to keep thyself from all fornication and beside thy wife never endure to know a crime now crime denotes a mortal sin therefore fornication and all intercourse with other than one's wife is a mortal sin. Further, nothing but mortal sin debars a man from God's kingdom, but fornication debars him, as shown by the words of the Apostle in Galatians 5.21, who after mentioning fornication and certain other vices adds, They who do such things shall not obtain the kingdom of God. Therefore, simple fornication is a mortal sin. Further, it is written in the decretals, they should know that the same penance is to be enjoined for perjury as for adultery, fornication, and willful murder and other criminal offenses. Therefore, simple fornication is a criminal or mortal sin. I answer that, without any doubt, we must hold simple fornication to be a mortal sin, notwithstanding that a gloss on Deuteronomy 23.17 says, This is a prohibition against going with whores, whose vileness is venial. For instead of venial it should be venal, since such is the wanton's trade. In order to make this evident, we must take note that every sin committed directly against human life is a mortal sin. Now simple fornication implies an inordinateness that tends to injure the life of the offspring to be born of this union. For we find in all animals where the upbringing of the offspring needs care of both male and female, that these come together not indeterminately, but the male with a certain female whether one or several. Such is the case with all birds. While, on the other hand, among those animals where the female alone suffices for the offspring's upbringing, the union is indeterminate, as in the case of dogs and like animals. Now it is evident that the upbringing of a human child requires not only the mother's care for his nourishment, but much more the care of his father as guide and guardian, and under whom he progresses in goods both internal and external. Hence human nature rebels against an indeterminate union of the sexes, and demands that a man should be united to a determinate woman, and should abide with her a long time or even for a whole lifetime. Hence it is that in the human race the male has a natural solicitude for the certainty of offspring, because on him devolves the upbringing of the child and this certainly would cease if the union of sexes were indeterminate this union with a certain definite woman is called matrimony which for the above reason is said to belong to the natural law since however the union of the sexes is directed to the common good of the whole human race and common goods depend on the law for their determination as stated above in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 90, article 2. It follows that this union of man and woman, which is called matrimony, is determined by some law. What this determination is for us will be stated in the third part of this work, in the supplementum, question 50 and following, where we shall treat of the sacrament of matrimony. Wherefore, since fornication is an indeterminate union of the sexes as something incompatible with matrimony it is opposed to the good of the child's upbringing and consequently it is a mortal sin nor does it matter if a man having knowledge of a woman by fornication makes sufficient provision for the upbringing of the child because a matter that comes under the determination of the law is judged according to what happens in general, and not according to what may happen in a particular case. Reply to Objection 1. Fornication is reckoned in conjunction with these things, not as being on a par with them in sinfulness, but because the matters mentioned there were equally liable to cause dispute between Jews and Gentiles, and thus prevent them from agreeing unanimously. For among the Gentiles, fornication was not deemed unlawful, on account of the corruption of natural reason, whereas the Jews, taught by the divine law, considered it to be unlawful. The other things mentioned were loathsome to the Jews through custom introduced by the law into their daily life. Hence the apostles forbade these things to the Gentiles, not as though they were unlawful in themselves but because they were loathsome to the Jews, as stated above. In the Pars Prima Secundae, question 103, article 4, third reply. Reply to Objection 2 Fornication is said to be a sin, because it is contrary to right reason. Now man's reason is right insofar as it is ruled by the divine will, the first and supreme rule. Wherefore, that which a man does by God's will and in obedience to his command is not contrary to right reason, though it may seem contrary to the general order of reason. Even so, that which is done miraculously by the divine power is not contrary to nature, though it be contrary to the usual course of nature. Therefore, just as Abraham did not sin in being willing to slay his innocent son, because he obeyed God, although considered in itself it was contrary to right human reason in general. So too Hosea sinned not in committing fornication by God's command. Nor should such a copulation be strictly called fornication, though it be so called in reference to the general course of things. Hence Augustine says in his Confessions 3.8, When God commands a thing to be done against the customs or agreement of any people, though it were never done by them heretofore, it is to be done. And afterwards he adds, For as among the powers of human society the greater authority is obeyed in preference to the lesser, so must God in preference to all. Reply to Objection 3 Abraham and Jacob went into their handmaidens with no purpose of fornication, as we shall show further on when we treat of matrimony. In the supplementum, question 65, article 5, second reply. As to Judah, there is no need to excuse him, for he also caused Joseph to be sold. Reply to objection for. Simple fornication is contrary to the love of our neighbor, because it is opposed to the good of the child to be born, as we have shown, since it is an act of generation accomplished in a manner disadvantageous to the future child. Reply to Objection 5 A person who, while given to works of piety, yields to the inconstancy of the flesh, is freed from eternal loss in so far as these works dispose him to receive the grace to repent, and because by such works he makes satisfaction for his past inconstancy, but not so as to be freed by pious works if he persist in carnal inconstancy impenitent until death. Reply to objection six. One copulation may result in the begetting of a man, wherefore inordinate copulation, which hinders the good of the future child, is a mortal sin as to the very genus of the act, and not only as to the inordinateness of concupiscence. On the other hand, one meal does not hinder the good of a man's whole life, wherefore the act of gluttony is not a mortal sin by reason of its genus. It would, however, be a mortal sin if a man were knowingly to partake of food, which would alter the whole condition of his life, as was the case with Adam. Nor is it true that fornication is the least of the sins comprised under lust, for the marriage act that is done out of sensuous pleasure is a lesser sin. Third Article whether fornication is the most grievous of sins. Objection one: You would seem that fornication is the most grievous of sins, for seemingly a sin is the more grievous, according as it proceeds from a greater sensuous pleasure. Now the greatest sensuous pleasure is in fornication, for a gloss on First Corinthians seven nine says that the flame of sensuous pleasure. Is most fierce in lust. Therefore, it seems that fornication is the gravest of sins. Objection to further, a sin is the more grievous that is committed against a person more closely united to the sinner. Thus, he sins more grievously who strikes his father than one who strikes a stranger. Now, according to First Corinthians six eighteen. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body which is most intimately connected with a man therefore it seems that fornication is the most grievous of sins objection three further the greater a good is the graver would seem to be the sin committed against it now the sin of fornication is seemingly opposed to the good of the whole human race, as appears from what has been said in the foregoing article. It is also against Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 6.15. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Therefore, fornication is the most grievous of sins. On the contrary, Gregory says in his commentary on Job 33.12 that the sins of the flesh are less grievous than spiritual sins. I answer that the gravity of a sin may be measured in two ways. First, with regard to the sin in itself. Secondly, with regard to some accident. The gravity of a sin is measured with regard to the sin itself, by reason of its species which is determined according to the good to which that sin is opposed now fornication is contrary to the good of the child to be born wherefore it is a graver sin as to its species than those sins which are contrary to external goods such as theft and the like while it is less grievous than those which are directly against god and sins that are injurious to the life of one already born, such as murder reply to objection one the sensual pleasure that aggravates a sin is that which is in the inclination of the will, but the sensual pleasure that is in the sensitive appetite lessens the sin because a sin is the less grievous according as it is committed under the impulse of a greater passion it is in this way that the greatest sensual pleasure is in fornication hence augustine says that of all christian conflicts the most difficult combats are those of chastity wherein the fight is a daily one but victory rare and isidore declares in on the supreme good two thirty nine that Mankind is subjected to the devil by carnal lust more than by anything else, because, to wit, the vehemence of this passion is more difficult to overcome. Reply to Objection 2 The fornicator is said to sin against his own body, not merely because the pleasure of fornication is consummated in the flesh, which is also the case in gluttony, but also because he acts against the good of his own body by an undue resolution and defilement thereof and an undue association with another nor does it follow from this that fornication is the most grievous sin because in man reason is of greater value than the body wherefore if there be a sin more opposed to reason it will be more grievous Reply to Objection 3. The sin of fornication is contrary to the good of the human race, in so far as it is prejudicial to the individual begetting of the one man that may be born. Now one who is already an actual member of the human species attains to the perfection of the species more than one who is a man potentially, and from this point of view murder is a more grievous sin than fornication and every kind of lust, through being more opposed to the good of the human species. Again, a divine good is greater than the good of the human race, and therefore those sins also that are against God are more grievous. Moreover, fornication is a sin against God, not directly as though the fornicator intended to offend God, but consequently in the same way as all mortal sins. And just as the members of our body are Christ's members, so too our spirit is one with Christ, according to First Corinthians 6.17. He who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit. Wherefore also, spiritual sins are more against Christ than fornication is. Fourth article, whether there can be mortal sin in touches and kisses. Objection 1. It would seem that there is no mortal sin in touches and kisses. For the Apostle says in Ephesians 5, three, Fornication, and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not so much as be named among you as becometh saints. Then he adds, or obscenity, which a gloss refers to kissing and fondling, or foolish talking as soft speeches or scurrility, which fools call geniality, that is jocularity. And afterwards he continues in Ephesians five five. For know ye this, and understand that no fornicator or unclean or covetous person, which is the serving of idols hath inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of god thus making no further mention of obscenity as neither of foolish talking or scurrility therefore these are not mortal sins objection to further fornication is stated to be a mortal sin as being prejudicial to the good of the future child's begetting and upbringing But these are not affected by kisses and touches or blandishments. Therefore, there is no mortal sin in these. Objection 3. Further, things that are mortal sins in themselves can never be good actions. Yet kisses, touches and the like can be done sometimes without sin. Therefore, they are not mortal sins in themselves. On the contrary, a lustful look is less than a touch, a caress, or a kiss. But according to Matthew five twenty eight, whosoever shall look on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. Much more, therefore, are lustful kisses and other like things mortal sins. Further, Cyprian says, in his letter 42 by their very intercourse their blandishments their converse their embraces those who are associated in a sleep that knows neither honor nor shame acknowledge their disgrace and crime therefore by doing these things a man is guilty of a crime that is of mortal sin i answer that a thing is to be a mortal sin in two ways first by reason of its species and in this way a kiss caress or touch does not of its very nature imply a mortal sin for it is possible to do such things without lustful pleasure either as being the custom of one's country or on account of some obligation or reasonable cause secondly A thing is said to be a mortal sin by reason of its cause. Thus he who gives an alms in order to lead someone into heresy sins mortally on account of his corrupt intention. Now, it has been stated above in the Pars Prima question 74, article 8, that it is a mortal sin not only to consent to the act, but also to the delectation of a mortal sin. Wherefore, since fornication is a mortal sin, and much more so the other kinds of lust, it follows that in such like sins not only consent to the act, but also consent to the pleasure is a mortal sin. Consequently, when these kisses and caresses are done for this delectation, it follows that they are mortal sins, and only in this way are they said to be lustful therefore in so far as they are lustful they are mortal sins reply to objection one the apostle makes no further mention of these three because they are not sinful except as directed to those that he had mentioned before reply to objection to although kisses and touches do not by their very nature hinder the good of the human offspring, they proceed from lust, which is the source of this hindrance, and on this account they are mortally sinful. Reply to Objection 3 This argument proves that such things are not mortal sins in their species. Fifth Article whether nocturnal pollution is a mortal sin objection one it would seem that nocturnal pollution is a sin for the same things are the matter of merit and demerit now a man may merit while he sleeps as was the case with solomon who while asleep obtained the gift of wisdom from the lord according to third kings three two therefore A man may demerit while asleep, and thus nocturnal pollution would seem to be a sin. Objection to, further, whoever has the use of reason can sin. Now a man has the use of reason while asleep, since in our sleep we frequently discuss matters, choosing this rather than that, consenting to one thing or dissenting to another. Therefore, one may sin while asleep, so that nocturnal pollution is not prevented by sleep from being a sin, seeing that it is a sin according to its genus. Objection 3. Further, it is useless to reprove and instruct one who cannot act according to or against reason. Now man, while asleep, is instructed and reproved by God, according to Job 33.15 and 16, By a dream in a vision by night, when deep sleep is wont to lay hold of men, then he openeth the ears of men, and teaching instructeth them in what they are to learn. Therefore, a man, while asleep, can act according to or against his reason, and this is to do good or sinful actions and thus it seems that nocturnal pollution is a sin on the contrary augustine says in on the literal meaning of genesis twelve fifteen when the same image that comes into the mind of a speaker presents itself to the mind of the sleeper so that the latter is unable to distinguish the imaginary from the real union of bodies the flesh is at once moved with the result that usually follows such motions. And yet there is as little sin in this as there is in speaking and therefore thinking about such things while one is awake. I answer that nocturnal pollution may be considered in two ways. First, in itself, and thus it has not the character of a sin. For every sin depends on the judgment of reason, since even the first movement of the sensuality has nothing sinful in it, except in so far as it can be suppressed by reason. Wherefore, in the absence of reason's judgment, there is no sin in it. Now during sleep reason has not a free judgment, for there is no one who, while sleeping, does not regard some of the images formed by his imagination as though they were real, as stated above in the first part. Question 84, Article 8, Second Reply. Wherefore, what a man does while he sleeps and is deprived of reason's judgment is not imputed to him as a sin, as neither are the actions of a maniac or an imbecile. Secondly, Nocturnal pollution may be considered with reference to its cause. This may be threefold. One is a bodily cause. For when there is excess of seminal humor in the body, or when the humor is disintegrated either through overheating of the body or some other disturbance, the sleeper dreams things that are connected with the discharge of this excessive or disintegrated humor. The same thing happens when nature is cumbered with other superfluities, so that phantasms relating to the discharge of those superfluities are formed in the imagination. Accordingly, if this excess of humor be due to a sinful cause, for instance, excessive eating or drinking, nocturnal pollution has the character of sin from its cause. Whereas if the excess or disintegration of these superfluities be not due to a sinful cause. Nocturnal pollution is not sinful, neither in itself nor in its cause. A second cause of nocturnal pollution is on the part of the soul and the inner man, for instance, when it happens to the sleeper on account of some previous thought. For the thought which preceded while he was awake is sometimes purely speculative for instance, when one thinks about the sins of the flesh for the purpose of discussion, while sometimes it is accompanied by a certain emotion, either of concupiscence or of abhorrence. Now, nocturnal pollution is more apt to arise from thinking about carnal sins with concupiscence for such pleasures, because this leaves its trace and inclination in the soul, so that the sleeper is more easily led in his imagination to consent to acts productive of pollution in this sense the philosopher says in ethics one thirteen that in so far as certain movements in some degree pass from the waking state to the state of sleep the dreams of good men are better than those of any other people and augustine says in the literal meaning of genesis twelve fifteen that even during sleep The soul may have conspicuous merit on account of its good disposition. Thus it is evident that nocturnal pollution may be sinful on the part of its cause. On the other hand, it may happen that nocturnal pollution ensues after thoughts about carnal acts, though they were speculative or accompanied by abhorrence, and then it is not sinful, neither in itself nor in its cause. The third cause is spiritual and external. For instance, when by the work of a devil the sleeper's phantasms are disturbed so as to induce the aforesaid result. Sometimes this is associated with a previous sin, namely the neglect to guard against the wiles of the devil. Hence the words of the hymn at Even, Our enemy repress, that so our bodies no uncleanness know. On the other hand, this may occur without any fault on man's part, and through the wickedness of the devil alone. Thus we read in the Colationes Patrum of a man who was ever wont to suffer from nocturnal pollution on festivals, and that the devil brought this about in order to prevent him from receiving Holy Communion. Hence it is manifest that nocturnal pollution is never a sin, but is sometimes the result of a previous sin. Reply to Objection 1 Solomon did not merit to receive wisdom from God while he was asleep. He received it in token of his previous desire. It is for this reason that his petition is stated to have been pleasing to God, in Third Kings 3.10, as Augustine observes, in the literal meaning of Genesis 12.15. Reply to Objection 2. The use of reason is more or less hindered in sleep, according as the inner sensitive powers are more or less overcome by sleep, on account of the violence or attenuation of the evaporations. Nevertheless, it is always hindered somewhat, so as to be unable to elicit a judgment altogether free, as stated in the first part, question 84, article 8, second reply therefore what it does then is not imputed to it as a sin reply to objections three reasons apprehension is not hindered during sleep to the same extent as its judgment for this is accomplished by reason turning to sensible objects which are the first principles of human thought hence nothing hinders man's reason during sleep from apprehending anew something arising out of the traces left by his previous thoughts and phantasms presented to him or again through divine revelation or the interference of a good or bad angel end of question 154 part 1 read by michael shane craig lambert l c